everyone. Welcome to the Beyond COVID podcast at Harbor Center for International Development, or CID as we call it. This podcast is a series of conversations with faculty experts on various dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID Research Initiative is to make use of the lessons learned and capitalize on innovations sparked by the pandemic to address losses and reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Effie Luo, and I'm a recent graduate at Harvard Graduate School of Education, a CID student ambassador and host for today. I'm passionate about exploring the intersection between international development and education. This week, we're joined by Professor Gordon Hansen. He is the Peter Wortham Professor in Urban Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations and co-editor of the Journal of Economic Perspectives. I'm sitting down with him on June 6, 2022 to discuss global labor market, macro policy, and economic growth in the post-COVID era. Professor Hansen, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Thanks, Effie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Let's get started from your uh, academic and professional experience. You have such a broad range of uh, research interests from international trade, immigration labor market to inequality and urban economic policy across various nations and contexts. Can you share with us how you develop those interests and passion and tell us more about your recent work of adopting innovative methods such as neural networks to predict economic growth? When I was in college and graduate school, my interest was very much problem-oriented. I was never the sort of economist who got excited about math and then looked for applications of math. Uh, for me, I was interested in places and problems and challenges. And early on, it was studying economic development in Latin America, and particularly in Mexico, that sparked my interest. It was through uh, looking at the challenges that Mexico was confronting in the 1990s at, as it, uh, its economy had recently liberalized trade, was undergoing just a bunch of macroeconomic challenges and was looking forward to the North American Free Trade Agreement, that I developed ideas about how I study the way in which a country like Mexico would integrate with its northern, northern neighbor in the United States. That led me to kind of dive into a bunch of techniques related to economic geography, international trade models, and then I followed those interests over time uh, looking for new ways in which I could apply insights I developed in the past and in these very specific applications to new opportunities. That ultimately led me to spend a lot of time understanding the consequences of US trade with China on, on the American labor market. When it comes to satellite imagery, and this is a, another offshoot of research, I occasionally get distracted by some crazy ideas that I end up pursuing just because they seem like fun. I was struck by the fact that we have very powerful models in economics now, and we have lots of examples, important shocks, be they policy interventions, be they uh, you know, unexpected changes in, in economic activity, but we often lack data on outcomes that we use to study what's going on, on on the ground. And I developed some techniques that uh, where we can use satellite imagery in order to track those changes more carefully and expand the set of contexts in which we can uh, study uh, how policies have affected well-being. Thank you so much, Professor, for sharing. 
I noticed that your recent research addresses how globalization in the form of immigration and expanded trade with China have affected U.S. labor markets. During the pandemic, we know that China and the U.S. are taking different COVID regulation policy, and that could potentially affect multiple um, aspects of social activities, including international trade, manufacturing and labor markets and so on. So I'm wondering what are some trends you observed and what's your prediction about the future economic dynamics between the US and China? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to the US-China relationship. You know, COVID has been something of an interruption in the ongoing economic conflict that's been heightened a lot under the presidency of Donald Trump as the US raised tariffs on imports from China and then China responded in kind. And in the intervening two and a half years that we've been dealing with the pandemic, each country has been uh, uh, in large part distracted by dealing with the challenges of, of COVID-19 itself. As we're now kind of slowly beginning to get to the point where we can look beyond the near term, we're kind of back where we started. Uh, the U.S. and China disagree pretty fundamentally about what should be the rules of the game governing global commerce. That conflict has, has only intensified with U.S. and China taking different approaches uh, to COVID-19, with the conflict in Ukraine right now, and with China moving in what seems to be uh, a much more authoritarian direction. So we had a, a heating up tensions between U.S. and China between 2016 and 2020, uh, after a bit of a pause, I think we're gonna see continued heightened tensions as we move into the next phase. Yeah, thank you for that. So building on this topic, uh, so in your publication of Who Will Fill China's Shoes? The Global Evolution of Labor-Intensive Manufacturing from last year, you mentioned that the labor-intensive exporting in China has been declining and is gradually shifting to other emerging economies. So what are some causes and impacts of this change in global economy, um, maybe in the next 10 years? What's your observation and prediction? So the exciting thing about studying China's economy is that stuff has always changed. You go from one five years to the next five years and, and things can look very different. Um, what, uh, some of those changes have been hard for us to pick up in part because the data coming out of China have, have become of lower quality in recent years. One of the things that I think has flown under the radar screen is the way in which China's export base has really transformed since the, the, the middle of the last decade. You think about the early phases of China's just uh, overwhelmingly dramatic export boom from the early 90s um, through up to the, the beginning of the global financial crisis in 2007. That was really driven by labor-intensive products. Initially, that was things like apparel and footwear and furniture. Then in, it moved to cell phone handsets and laptop computers. China came to dominate a substantial share of global exports in those goods. If you look across those labor-intensive goods, China's total export share reached as high as 40% in a lot of different cases. What happened then, though, was kind of was, was unexpected and, and a bit messy. One is that China had completed an early process of economic growth where it was transitioning from being very close to very open. And so it's natural that as it developed, its comparative advantage would evolve. Another big change was the massive increase in the supply of college graduates that China was producing, which helped push the economy towards, towards more skill-intensive products and, and more technology-intensive products. What was also important 
is that China began to rely less on the dynamism of the private sector for economic growth, which was the driver of economic growth in the 1990s and the first part of the 2000s, to a situation in which the government was trying to direct more resources towards state-owned enterprises and other enterprises that were closely connected with the government. The consequence has been that those industries that drove China's export boom have been choked off from resources and further growth opportunities. Uh, and that has created opportunities for other nations to come in and fill the market share that China has begun to abdicate. I don't want to overstate this because China is still a major player in those markets. But what we've seen is places like Vietnam and Bangladesh really step up uh, their exports to the rest of the world as, uh, as China's participation in labor-intensive manufacturing has uh, diminished. The surprising thing to me, at least, is how few um, countries have taken up this opportunity. You might think that places like uh, India or, or Pakistan would step in and begin to export in the labor-intensive products that China has moved out of, but we haven't really seen that. So we have China beginning to move out of a given set of sectors and uh, just a few actors move in to replace it. And that means that you know, the, what the global markets are gonna look like in the labor-intensive products that China has dominated for a long time is quite, is quite unsettled and is likely to be so for the next five to 10 years. Thank you for sharing. We know that inequality is another important area of your research. The pandemic has exacerbated social inequality gap across nations. In the annual uh, global empowerment meeting, you mentioned that uh, why and how inequality has complicated the operation of macro policy. Could you elaborate more about the impact of COVID on health and unemployment insurance? Sure. So you know, we've learned a lot about uh, our ability to help populations in need during the course of the pandemic and how that ability varies so much across countries. Uh, in, in high-income countries, where you have well-developed uh, unemployment insurance programs, we were able to direct resources to workers uh, pretty quickly. In the US, what we allowed to, uh, to happen was a massive increase in unemployment and then an equally substantial increase in unemployment insurance benefits uh, to help those workers kind of get through a period of being unable to work. Europe took a different approach in that they, they applied substantial subsidies to firms to keep workers in jobs. But again, it was the same idea, uh, increasing resource flows to workers to help them deal with the, the near-term consequences of the pandemic. In many emerging economies where you have 40, 50, 60% of workers in the informal sector, you lack the mechanism to provide that resource flow. As a consequence, it was very hard to target workers who were most affected by the COVID-19 shutdown, and that's workers uh, in uh, informal activities, selling stuff in the street, activities that require close personal interaction with somebody else. And that highlighted a severe shortcoming in terms of dealing with short-term uh, severe macroeconomic downturns in many developing economies. Yeah, thank you, Professor. So to better address the inequality issue, what can we as like researchers, educators, and the future policymakers do about it? What's your suggestions? Well, the most important thing is to know who's in need. And it's hard to figure out who's in need in the middle of a crisis. So you need to be building the data infrastructure that allows us to track areas of need in, in, in calm times so that we're ready when the storms come. 
in the high income country context, the important thing there is to identify vulnerable populations that might be poorly integrated into the modern social welfare system. One example of, of such populations in the U.S. are undocumented workers. Those workers did not have access to conventional unemployment insurance. And so when they lost their jobs, because many of them were working in jobs in which face-to-face -face interaction was an important part of what they do, they had no means of support uh, to fall back on. There's exciting work uh, and important work done by Jeff Liebman here at the Kennedy School on the use of conditional cash transfer programs to vulnerable populations with substantial number of undocumented workers and how successful they were in addressing those issues. So you wanna be able to know um, who has access to standard social welfare benefits uh, and who doesn't so that you can make sure that as money goes out through conventional channels, you're also able to supplement that with money targeted to uh, people who, who do fall through the cracks. What we've learned through uh, policy interventions in a whole bunch of different countries is that cash works pretty well. We don't need an elaborate administrative apparatus that is delivering in-kind benefits, putting money in the pockets of people who are in a, a, in a, in a situation of economic distress is the most effective thing uh, we can do. In developing a country, uh, countries, the, the challenge is immense. And that's in part because how do, how, do we, how do you track what's going on with individuals in most economies? It's through their participation in, a, in a, a public pension system, a social security system of some kind. A substantial number of informal sector workers by virtue of being informal are outside of that system. And so we don't have commensurate ways of tracking them. Uh, countries are beginning to develop these ways. India has been at the forefront of using of creating biometric IDs as a vehicle for providing aid to uh, low-income households. And so what we need is a much more robust data infrastructure that allows us to be in contact with individuals and creates the means of putting cash into bank accounts at low cost when hardship arises. Yeah, thank you, Professor, for sharing that. Uh, so besides like using cash uh, from the macro policy perspective, are there any like effective initiatives that has proved like to be working like different contexts, like workforce development and other um, you know policy implement implementation you observed? Well, as we're as we're you know coming through the uh, the pandemic and we're beginning to think longer term again, we come back to confront the challenges that we were facing in 2019. In many countries, what this means is the absence of good economic opportunities for less educated workers. In the United States, we've done a poor job of creating good jobs for non-college educated workers for a long time, and we're doing a worse job creating uh, good jobs for even college educated workers uh, in many sectors of the economy. Part of that challenge uh, is a result of the fact that job loss in manufacturing and other traditional industries was concentrated in specific regions, and those regions had a hard time adjusting. They had a hard time moving on to something else. We learned a bit about what are the policy mechanisms that help places adjust more successfully, although they, we still have a great deal to learn. Some of those mechanisms evolve uh, effective workforce development. Uh, the most effective programs um, that have been studied by Larry Katz here at Harvard, uh, a group of researchers that he's been working with, relate to active labor market programs in which we look at workers who are vulnerable, who are facing challenges of one kind or another. <clears throat> this may be underserved youth, may be the long-term unemployed, 
Um, we identify the skills in demand by employers uh, that are in their relevant labor markets. We provide targeted training in those skills and then a set of wraparound services that help workers assess their career possibilities, that help them understand what it takes to find a job, to hold on to a job, and to advance in a job. These programs have actually been around for a long time. They were pioneered a couple of decades ago, but have been surprisingly low to take hold across, the, uh, across workforce development uh, systems. Oftentimes, they involve community colleges, which are present uh, in the United States in a, in a bunch of different contexts. In emerging economy contexts, they can also involve educational institutions or vocational training uh, institutes of, of, of various guises. Uh, we know they work. We know they help individual workers redirect into better jobs over the, the medium run. What we don't know yet is whether we can pull this off at scale so that it affects higher population of workers uh, who find themselves in a situation of dis, uh, disadvantage in a, in a labor market, in a local labor market in its entirety. That's a very important area of research as we now kind of understand what are the micro interventions that work, how do we scale, uh, scale those up so that they can work for uh, regional economies in their, in their entirety. You talk on the economic impacts of immigration at the National Bureau of Economic Research. You address that the COVID-19 threat to international immigration and how U.S. policy changes push firms to rethink location choices and regionalize innovation. Could you please share more about how does COVID impact the global labor productivity and the overall innovation ecosystem? So in the U.S. and a number of high-income countries, including France, Germany, UK, Italy, Spain, Immigration has been an important part of their economic development in the, in the past couple of decades. In many countries, that immigration takes two forms of individuals with pretty low education levels coming in to take jobs that the local population doesn't seem all that interested uh, in, in taking up these days, and also uh, in jobs that have very high skill requirements in what's become a global competition for, for talent. What we know about uh, the most talented workers is that they tend to agglomerate in areas where innovation is occurring. And innovation itself ends up being highly spatially concentrated because there seem to be lots of spillovers associated with how we create new ideas and turn those uh, new ideas into new products and, and new processes. So if you let market forces work, what's going to happen is that talent is going to concentrate in particular places. And that could be uh, Silicon Valley, it could be New York, it could be Boston, uh, it could be other global centers of innovation in, in other parts of the world. And uh, you know, to a certain extent, we allowed that concentration of talent to occur in the 1990s and 2000s. Now that opposition to immigration has intensified in high-income countries, it's interrupting the way in which we attract the most, uh, the most skilled workers uh, in innovation and how the innovation economy itself uh, is organizing. The US was putting increasing barriers in place under President Donald Trump. And then when COVID-19 hit, what we had is just many more barriers put in place just because of the way in which the pandemic uh, interrupted the movement of people across national borders. We now are in a situation where we're thinking about, well, what do we do next? And opposition to immigration only seems to have intensified across high-income countries to the extent that we don't go back to the relatively 
the relatively free movement of labor across borders that we saw in the 90s and especially the early part of the 2000s, what we're doing is undermining the global innovation ecosystem that has developed. And we would kind of anticipate that that means slower productivity growth in lots of places and maybe for the world as a whole. Yeah, a follow-up question on that. So what can policymakers, business owners, and also international scholars, researchers, and students do to respond to those um, changes? Well, I think we need to recognize that people are concerned about uh, immigration and those concerns aren't going away. Can't, you can't simply say, well, this is a bunch of political entrepreneurs like President Trump and people uh, who have followed his, his strategies, just kind of ginning up animosity towards uh, immigration and it's likely to play itself out in the relatively near term. We've now seen that opposition to immigration has become a successful strategy over the last decade or so in a bunch of different countries. Uh, again, we've seen this in US, France, Germany, UK, and expanding set of places. We then need to convince people that uh, immigration policies done well and yield benefits for an economy as a whole. So there's a credibility gap there with regards, uh, with regards to the public. And research obviously plays a very important role um, in, uh, in helping address that credibility gap. Uh, on the policy side, we've got to assure people that policymakers are in fact in control. There's a sense in which there has been chaos in the enactment of immigration policy uh, in part due to the manner in which immigration spikes in response to crises in different parts of the world. And we need to do a better job of convincing people that the mechanisms we're going to put in place can handle those upsurges in a way that doesn't import that chaos um, uh, inside countries. So the, uh, I, I listen to academics complain about the tenor of the debate about immigration a lot. And there, in the end, a lot of those complaints can sound like complaints about the political preferences of people. I think as social scientists, we want to take those preferences seriously and think about how we present evidence and policy design in a way that helps allay uh, people's concerns about the manner in which borders have been managed in, in recent decades. Thank you, Professor, for sharing that. My last question is that Beginning in early 2021, there is an ongoing economic trend of what we call the great resignation in the United States. Some people are suffering from disabilities from long COVID, while others are getting used to a hybrid work mode and people from younger generations are seeking a work-life balance. So what is your observation and analysis of this great resignation and phenomenon and what are some uh, macro policy implications? I think uh, to, to... Uh, paraphrase what my colleague David Otter has said, is that um, uh, economists are, are unified in their understanding of the great resignation, and that is that we have no idea why it's occurring. Um, I, that, that was the kind of the, the, the state of play six months or so ago. We might have a little bit better sense now. One thing is to appreciate the fact that the U.S. labor market is a big, sprawling place with a highly diverse mix of people in it whose experiences uh, under COVID have been equivalently heterogeneous. Uh, as a consequence, the, the slowness of overall employment rates to return to their pre-pandemic levels has lots of different causes. Messing stuff up is the fact that we now have surging inflation and attempts on the part of the US Federal Reserve to make monetary policy more restrictive 
uh, and, and thereby tamp down inflation, that will only slow kind of getting back to uh, long run um, uh, employment rates. The, uh, among the, 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 the causal factors that we might put at the top of the list is simply burnout. I don't think we fully appreciated how damaging COVID was to healthcare workers, to workers in education, to workers in uh, retail trade and other frontline industries. They've gone through an immensely challenging and difficult time in the last couple of years. And that, uh, in, it, would, it should then be no surprise that it affects their near-term attachment um, to the labor force. The other thing that's gone on is that we've seen a shift in where labor demand is concentrated. Instead of being at the center of the biggest, most expensive cities, it seems to have spread itself out a bit. Part of that is related to the move towards uh, greater work from home. And part of that uh, is to do with uh, workers uh, being frustrated with the long commutes and very high housing prices of, um, of big cities and moving to other places, whether they can work from home uh, or not. Uh, it's going to take a while for that to sort itself out. The, the overall movement for work from home, I would guess, is going to be less pronounced than it looks right now. We're going to see steady adjustment back to more uh, attachment to central workplaces and being in person, just because we know that there are positive spillovers of putting people together and having them work and figure out stuff. And it's not like we magically solve the problem about allowing for spillovers to, to operate digitally uh, just during the pandemic um, uh, itself. So in uh, many recessions are a big shock that hits lots of parts of the economy in a roughly comparable magnitude at the same time, or at least hits big parts of the economy in comparable magnitudes at the same time. COVID was different. Uh, its impacts were highly heterogeneous. And as a consequence, coming out of that sort of confused, disparate environment is gonna, uh, is, is gonna, is gonna take some time. Thank you again, Professor Henson, for taking your time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and the CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we will see you back soon.